What an encouraging song. Don't you need to be reminded of that? In the midst of the brokenness and the sin and the tears and the confusion, just to be reminded again today, grace will prevail. Jesus has overcome. And if you know Christ, Jesus, by His grace, will prevail in our lives. Now, it's not automatic. And there are actually steps we can take whereby we can see grace prevail in an increasing way in our lives. I've been a pastor here for almost 33 years. And you want to know one of the most humbling epiphanies I've ever had? I spend almost half of my work week preparing messages to deliver on Sunday mornings. And the humbling epiphany is this. It's actually not Sunday messages that God most uses for grace to prevail in a Christian's life. That's humbling. Now, what, what most is used of God for grace to prevail in a Christian's life is engagement in small group discipleship. You show me a Christian who's not involved in small group discipleship, And I will show you a Christian who's not growing anywhere near like they could. Paul took discipleship seriously. Because Jesus took discipleship seriously. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 20, 18-20, you probably know uh, the verses. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and lo, behold, listen up, I am with you to the end of the age. The last Recorded words of Jesus by Matthew before he ascended into heaven. There's only one main verb in that entire passage I just quoted. Just one. And that one main verb, the one thing Jesus calls us to do as Christians, is make disciples. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 1 Thessalonians 2... Paul gives us some elements of gospel discipleship. 
Let me give you a definition of what, and this is my definition, right? There, there are a hundred definitions of gospel discipleship. This is my definition. Gospel discipleship is an intentional, gospel-centered friendship that aims to propel other people to deeper maturity and greater hope in Christ. Pretty simple. Let me say it again. Gospel discipleship is an intentional, gospel-centered friendship that aims to propel others to deeper maturity and greater hope in Christ. The, 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 one of the key elements of the definition is propels others to deeper maturity and greater hope in Christ. I don't know if you all are into the Olympics, uh, the Winter Olympics, but I particularly am. And I, I love the Winter Olympics for some reason a lot more than the Summer Olympics. Uh, I, I mean, people flying through the air off a ski jump. That's nuts. I love watching that. But, but one of my favorite events is actually short track speed skating. These guys and gals, they have, they have skates on that are, that are literally, not metaphorically, literally as sharp as razor blades. Like to test whether their blades are ready for the race, they shave their arms to make sure. And the greatest event, in my humble opinion, of short track speed skating is the relay. There's five different teams. So there's five skaters. By the way, short track, it's only 120 yards around. It's, it's only the size of a hockey rink. And the gun sounds, they go, and they're going around the track and there's hardly any room for maneuvering. And all the rest of the teammates, of all the other teams, they're warming up on the infield, on the inner part of the ice. And then when it comes time to switch, it's not like a running relay where they pass a baton, but the next racer of each one of the teams starts picking up speed on the infield. And then they slip into the main ice and the one that's been skating, that's been racing, they grab a hold of the hips or the back of their next teammate. And with their speed with which they're coming across the line, they then propel their teammate. And they push them with this force that gets them running. And, and then that person skates around the rink. And then the next teammate picks up speed and pulls in front of that person. And you have this, this rhythm of racing, propelling, being propelled, racing, propelling, being propelled, racing, propelling, being propelled. And it is a perfect picture of the Christian life. We, each one of us who knows Christ, is in the race of our lives. 
But to win that race, we need to be propelled by others in the race. But not only that, we are called to propel others that are in the race as well. When Paul came to Thessalonica, he preached the gospel to a group of non-Christians. God opened the hearts of many to respond, and a church was planted. Then Paul and Silas and Timothy began discipling those young Christians. And wherever Paul went, he said to the people he had propelled, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many, you turn around and entrust to other faithful people who in turn will teach others. It's just like short track speed skating relay. You're in the race, you get propelled. You race, you propel others until Christ comes back. In this passage, we see elements of gospel discipleship. By the way, I'm not only going to tell you what we're called to do this morning. You need to know that there's very easy ways to apply this sermon. You look around, you see some missing people this morning. We have a hundred people this weekend at what we call a gospel waltz journey retreat. It exposes people to the gospel waltz and then gives them the opportunity to be involved in discipleship so that they grow in grace, so that they grow in hope. And the design is that they, in turn, after they've been propelled, they're equipped to propel others. We have something called the battle for the heart. It's a much longer discipleship process. So this isn't something we're merely calling you to do today. We actually have opportunities for you to do something about it. Let's all stand in our reverence for God's Word. Follow along with me as I read 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 16. This is God's Word. Again, think about this in terms of discipleship. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. What a picture of discipleship. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. By the way, he's not talking about proclaiming the gospel to non-Christians there. He's talking about proclaiming the gospel of God to Christians. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, gospel discipleship, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 
And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Do you see how many times he's talking about believers, believers, believers? Paul's giving us a paradigm for discipleship here. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins." but wrath has come upon them at last. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. He's calling us to deeper hope. And one of the ways he propels us to deeper hope is through small group discipleship. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. But may we not just be hearers of the word. By your grace and spirit, may we be doers as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So three elements of gospel-driven discipleship that lead us to greater maturity and deeper hope in Christ. First of all, grow in hope through being committed to nurturing discipleship. Grow in hope through committing to nurturing discipleship. Look at verse 7. Paul says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. When we talk about gospel-centered discipleship, please listen here carefully, we're not talking about a program. Discipleship is not a program. Discipleship is is getting committed to a nurturing relationship where the gentleness of Christ is experienced in the context of small, intimate community. People need to experience the gentleness of God. And many Christians don't have that experience. There were a group of people listening to Jesus. And we know from the context that they were overwhelmed, not with Jesus, but with the religious people who were putting all this stuff on them. You need to do this. 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 You need to avoid that. 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 And they were being crushed under the load. And in that context, Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and crushed, and I will give you rest. And he says these words. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Like I said, I've been in Christian work for decades. 
And you know the hardest thing for Christians to believe? I've seen it. <laughs> By the way, it's all true of me. The hardest thing for me to believe is the, is the same thing I've seen as the hardest thing for all Christians to believe. And that is that in Christ Jesus, God really loves us. It's amazing how often Christians are told that. It's also amazing how few Christians believe that. It's almost like we all know it in our heads, but very few of us experience it in our lives. And one of the main ways God takes the message of his gentle and lowly heart and his affection from the head to the heart is as we get involved in nurturing discipleship where other people actually press the gospel down from the head to the heart. We need to be involved in relationships where people model the gentleness of Christ. How many times I've been in a small group where myself or one of the other folks in the group just blew it. Maybe with a spouse, maybe with a child, maybe in an area of moral failure. And the person, they, they know they did wrong. but what they most needed not just to hear, but to see and experience was the tender, gentle mercy of God displayed to them. See, I could preach on the grace of God for hours. And we'd all be touched to some extent. But when we get in a small, intimate setting and we actually start pursuing each other's hearts and pressing that gospel more deeply into our hearts, that's where life change occurs. You know, I'm going to say something really controversial, but please listen to me. The church today needs less Bible studies and more discipleship. You're not going to be nurtured in a large group Bible study, just like you're not going to be nurtured as I preach. I mean, you are, but you're not. We need to be involved in intimate small group communities that actually incarnate the love of God in a way that we taste it, in a way that we experience it. Paul says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, that's what nurturing discipleship is. It's someone caring personally and intimately 
for your soul. Someone pressing in the warm truths of grace into you in such a way that it moves from head to heart. In verse 8, Paul says, We were so affectionately desirous of you that we were ready to share not only the gospel but our own lives. You see that? Discipleship is not a mere transference of information. You're going to find few people, if any, that are more committed to the preaching of the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God through studies. I'm just telling you, they are insufficient to change lives. When I say insufficient, what I mean is preaching and teaching sets the table. Small group discipleship is where life change occurs. If you're not involved in small group discipleship, I promise you, your life is not changing the way it could. I'm just going to lay it out there as a bold fact. We desperately need the gospel pressed into us by others. Not ready only to share the gospel, again, not just mere transfer of content, but our own selves. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we not be a burden. Is there anyone who works harder than a young mom? I don't know of anybody. I don't know of anybody who labors harder than a nursing mother. All hours of the night, complete and utter self-sacrifice. Living that another human being that is helpless and vulnerable not only survives but thrives, is well-fed, kept warm, changed, is healthy. Paul says, we desperately need to be in that kind of a relationship. Every one of us. I came to Christ when I was 20 through the witness of a man that I didn't even know. He got my name from a basketball game. I filled out a comment card. Didn't even know the guy. He's still one of my best friends in the whole world. I can't tell you one truth he taught me. I'm not saying he didn't, right? What I'm saying is I can't tell you one truth he taught me that was like life-changing. Because you know what changed my life? Him being in my life. He just spent time with me. He just reminded me of the truth of the gospel. That's all he did. He he literally nursed me as a young baby Christian. He fed me. I don't know what he fed me. But whatever he did, it gave me growth and life. I can't remember a single thing Rick taught me. God used him to change my life. And one of the things he taught me was, I'm propelling you. I'm in the race. I'm propelling you. And what I'm doing with you, you need to do with others, and you need to propel them. Well, maybe that's the truth that changed my life. Maybe that's what Rick taught me. But, but it wasn't the truth he taught me. As important as truth is, it was that he was able to incarnate Jesus to me.
And when I had a hard time seeing Jesus or a hard time feeling Jesus or a hard time believing Jesus was real, Rick was Jesus. Well, Jesus was in Rick. And as far as I was concerned, when I was with Rick, I was with Jesus. And man, did that nourish my soul. Grow hope through committing to nurturing discipleship. Secondly, grow in hope through committing to challenging discipleship. Now, here's the interesting thing. Paul doesn't really talk about discipleship in terms of being a nursing mother. He also talks about discipleship in terms of being a challenging father. We need both. We need the nurture and care and tenderness and kindness of a nursing mother And we need the challenge and the exhortation and the urging of an exhorting father. Look at verse 10. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul is saying we need challenging examples. We need challenging models. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's not arrogance. We're called to do that. We're called to provide an example for others to follow. Verse 11, you know how like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you, encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. It's interesting how the whole gospel is presented by Paul in discipleship that involves elements of a nursing mother and elements of an exhorting father. We need both. As a matter of fact, it's actually both elements of the message of grace. One of our values is grace-driven here at Oak Mountain. And in all of our values, it's a both-and statement. We don't want to fall into any extremes. We, we, we want to be integrated. We want to be balanced. And so we don't want to be non-grace people who are legalistic and performance-oriented. But we certainly don't want to be cheap grace people who don't recognize that there's a life to live and there's a power of Christ that transforms our lives. So our value is grace-driven. We believe in the message of grace as the message of God's unconditional love in Christ, nurturing mother, okay, being loved, having affection. And we believe in the message of grace as the message of supernatural transforming power in Christ. Exhorting Father. Both are necessary. We need to provide examples. You know, it, uh, the, the first century father had basically two roles. One was to set an example for the children, and the other was to call them to imitation. Those are the basic two roles of the first century father. Provide an example, set an example, and then call them to imitate. And so Paul says in verse 12, we exhorted each one of you. We, ex- we, we, we warned you. We implored you. We inspired you. We motivated you. We charged you. It's, 
It's like we, we need to be pointed to the love of God in Christ, and we need it to be incarnated before our eyes. But you know what else we need? Come on! Let's go! We got a race to win here, man! There, there, there's really is this place for intensity, for excitement, for passion. And that's not to say women can't be passionate and men can't be nurturing, right? But look, there's no way around it. God created humanity, male and female. And the female gender has certain characteristics that God has placed there. And the male gender has certain characteristics that God has placed there. Men can be nurturing and women can be challenging. But generally speaking, women are the nurturers and men are the challengers. And all through Scripture, actually, believe it or not, all through creation, we see it. (laughs) I get a kick out of this. I'm going to read you a quote from a secular magazine called Eon. A-E-O-N. And it's a quote by an Oxford professor. She is an evolutionary biologist. Why I'm sort of smirking is because she's an evolutionary biologist, but she talks about how fathers are designed. That's like jumbo shrimp. I mean, uh, it's either you're either evolved or you're designed. It can't be both. So she's an evolutionary biologist, and she says, fathers are designed. And by the way, she's talking fathers like humans, but even like apes and gorillas. Fathers are designed to relate to their children through what she calls highly physical play, with lots of throwing up in the air, jumping about, tickling, accompanied by loud shouts, fun, and laughter. Now, of course, fathers can cuddle, but there's a hormone that scientists call the happy hormone. And when a mother is nursing or nurturing a young child, in the bond between the mother and the child, that happy hormone is released. But when it comes to a father and a child, that hormone isn't primarily released through cuddle, but more through rough and tumble. Now, obviously not too rough, but, but rough and tumble, play, some intensity. We need that. We need both. Do you have anybody in your life say, hey, come on, we got a race to win here. It's your, your turn. You're up. Let's go. We need that. Do you have that? We, we don't just want to sit around and hold each other's hands and say, oh, there, 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 there. Although that's important. And we certainly don't want, you know, constantly, come on, come on, go, 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 move, 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 run, run, run. We don't want that either. We need both. Do you have that in your life? Grow in hope through committing to nurturing discipleship, committing to challenging discipleship, and then lastly, grow in hope through committing to spirit-led discipleship. Now, when I say spirit-led, I'm not talking about some 
mysterious, mystical, following the leading whenever I get together with somebody. Hmm, what am I supposed to do? No. When I say spirit-led, I'm talking about the content is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. See, the Bible actually says the spirit-led life is the word-directed life. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And he says the result of being filled with the Spirit is talking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. What's interesting is in Colossians 3.16, Paul says the same thing about the word-directed life. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you will speak to another, one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and you will make melody in your hearts to the Lord. So the word-directed life is the spirit-directed life. The spirit-directed life is the word-directed life. Discipleship that is transformational is centered on the Word of God and pressing that Word into each other's lives in very specific and intimate and personalized and relevant ways. Again, it's so humbling, folks. If, if you're a Bible teacher or you're a preacher, it is so humbling. We spend all this time teaching, and lives are affected. But real transformation occurs when you get together and say, okay, what Bob said on Sunday, let's talk about it. What's going on in your life? And how does what Bob said on Sunday how does it need to be pressed into your life specifically? Okay, now we're doing business with God. Now, life change. By the way, can you tell I'm passionate about discipleship? Can I just tell you that I really do think I could give up preaching tomorrow if I could spend all my time meeting with men in small groups. Now, it's probably not wise for a guy to meet with women in a small group, right? So I'm not being uh, sexist. Women need to meet with women. Men need to meet with men. But I am a discipler that just happens to be a pastor. And y'all are accountants and homemakers and doctors, and teachers, and entrepreneurs. But your disciples first. Your disciples that just happen to be all those. So I would ask you, is that true? Or are you an entrepreneur and not a discipler? See, God's Word would say you're a discipler that happens to be an entrepreneur. If you look at this passage, throughout the entire passage, Paul focuses on content as that which needs to be shared in a gospel-centered, nurturing, challenging relationship. Look at verse 8. We shared with you not only the gospel, but our own lives. Well, not only the gospel means that he did, in fact, share the gospel. And by the way, he's not talking about non-Christians here. Paul is saying, I shared the gospel with you believers What's the message a non-Christian needs to hear to be a Christian? The gospel. What is the message a Christian needs to hear 
to be transformed. The gospel. The message doesn't change. The content doesn't change. We need to be pointed to Jesus, his person, and work every day of our lives. Paul here is talking about growing in hope through being committed to spirit-led discipleship focused on the gospel. Look at verse 9. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He's not saying he kept proclaiming the gospel because he didn't think they were Christians. He's saying, I know you're Christians, and I need to keep telling you the gospel over and over and over. Not to be saved, but to move more deeply into it, right? We never move beyond the gospel. We just simply get propelled more deeply into it. Look at verse 13. I thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received that not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. A discipling relationship is an intentional friendship centered around the word of God. Look at verse 13 again. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, very mature Christians who he's continually discipling. And at the end of his life, he's finished. He's not going to see him again. And he says, and so now I continue to commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. We really don't disciple anybody. Only Jesus makes disciples. But we are instruments in the Redeemer's hand. We are able to be used of God to press the gospel more deeply into each other's lives. I'll close with this. Uh, many of us are familiar with the Triple Crown, right? The Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, the Belmont Stakes, horse racing. People can make a lot of money not primarily from winning horse races, but from studying out their horses who win horse races. Now, if, let's say, a stallion wins the Kentucky Derby, their stud fee could be around $10,000 or so to sire other horses. But let's say that a Kentucky Derby winner sires a horse that wins the Kentucky Derby. The change in the stud fee is astronomical. Being a champion, the stud fee is about 10000 Siring a champion, your stud fee goes up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. The most valuable horse is not a champion. The most valuable horse is a horse that sires a champion. Now, we're not horses. And your value to God is not wrapped up into whether or not you disciple other men and women. Having said that, we do indeed 
bring value at certain levels to the kingdom of God. Okay? You can do nothing to make God value you more than he already does in Christ. You're infinitely valuable to him. But when it comes to our impact on the kingdom, the value is not primarily that you're a growing Christian, that you're a champion in the Christian life. The real value comes when we sire a champion or give birth to a champion. That's what we're called to do. We are in a short track speed skating race. We're zipping around and we are to propel each other forward in Christ. And we are to be propelled further up and further in to the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that we would simply take this truth and chew on it. And Lord, if we're not engaged in uh, intimate small group community that is transformational, God, that we examine our hearts and ask ourselves, why not? Father, we pray that we would not only walk with you personally, but we would recognize we can't walk with you alone. We need to be propelled by others. And Father, we also pray that we would get engaged in relationships where even if we feel we have so little to offer, we would propel other people forward in Christ. And God, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't even know Christ, we pray that today would be the day they transfer their trust from themselves to you, Jesus. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for putting people into our lives that have modeled your love. Thank you for putting people into our lives that have challenged our socks off. And thank you for putting people into our lives that have kept us centered on your word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's hear the benediction, the promise of God's love and favor on our lives as we depart to serve him. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Abba Father, and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.